Welcome to this episode of the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. The mission of the Greenville Oaks Church is to inspire people to follow Jesus because we're convinced that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. Find out more about Greenville Oaks at greenvilleoaks.org and connect with us on social media. We would love it if you could rate and review our podcast. It makes it easier for others to find us. And now, on to this week's message with Lead Minister Wade Hodges. Hello, everyone. Welcome to those of you who are gathered here, as well as those who are watching online. Glad we can all be together in this way. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 10. I'm continuing a series of messages in which I'm interacting with our church's five core values. And today I'm going to use one of Jesus's most familiar parables, as well as a study that was done at Princeton University a number of years ago, to highlight one of the more common obstacles to our living out our core value of demonstrate selflessness. Let's begin with the story Jesus tells. It's in Luke chapter 10, beginning of verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these, asked Jesus, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. When I lead retreats 
one of my favorite exercises is to pass out copies of stories like this one and invite all the participants to spend some time in silence imagining that they are part of this story from the perspective of one or several, or if there's time, all the characters. Now, I find this to be a particularly engaging way of sitting with Scripture, especially these stories that are so familiar to us that we think we already know what the story's about. We already know the point. We already know the big idea before we even finish reading the story. And it's fascinating what the Holy Spirit will reveal to us when we take the time to sit with and wait on fresh, new insights to come from an old, familiar story. Reading this story, entering it from the perspective of the lawyer, the teacher of the law, the expert in the law, who first comes to test Jesus and then seeks to justify himself, is supposed to mess us up. It's supposed to play games with our mind and our heart. It prompts us to ask, how do we look for loopholes and excuses and rationalizations for disregarding the command to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Because when we ask Jesus, who is my neighbor? We are also asking, who is not my neighbor? Which is another way of asking, who do I not have to love? We're asking Jesus to give us permission to keep hating our enemies. And when that's our question, who's my neighbor? Who's not my neighbor? Who do I not have to love? Then the story Jesus tells in response is designed to put us in a bind. He says a man was traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And Jesus describes the victim in this story in the most generic way possible. He's not a Jewish man, not a Gentile man, not a Pharisee, not a tax collector, not a good guy or a bad guy. It's just a man. It could be any kind of man in trouble. And then a priest and a Levite pass him by without helping. Two representatives from the religious establishment in Jerusalem do not offer aid. Now, the way Jesus tells the story, he sets us up to expect then that the third person to come along, whoever that might be, that third person will surely help this man. It's like that classic joke structure. A rabbi, a priest, and a plumber walk into a bar. I mean, it was a very low bar. When, when you hear that structure, you know what's coming. The punchline of the joke belongs to the third person in the sequence. And when the first two, the priest and the Levite, do not help, we expect that the third person will, and we probably expect and maybe hope that that third person to come along is a common Israelite. Just a good old boy 
who puts the clergy to shame. This kind of story would have appealed to and delighted the mostly common folk who were following Jesus around and would have overheard him telling this story to the expert in the law. We think we know what's coming because we think we know who is coming. And that's when Jesus yanks everyone's chain because the third person to come and save the day, the hero in this story is a despised Samaritan. The Samaritans were some of the Jews' least favorite people. They considered them to be enemies. And this Samaritan doesn't just help the man. He lavishes him with short-term and long-term care. Makes provisions for his stay at the inn. It's a shocking display of compassion for a stranger from a Samaritan. And now do you see the bind we're in? You see what Jesus has done to us? Because our question is, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells this story and then forces us to identify our hated enemy as the neighbor in the story. You notice how the lawyer can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan when Jesus asked who was a neighbor to this man. He just says, well, it was the one who showed mercy. And then Jesus presses it and tells us to not just identify, but also to imitate the one we despise. And when we enter the story from this perspective, we very quickly understand that this is about more than just demonstrating selflessness by helping those who are in need. No, this is a story about seeing the good in our enemies, which humanizes them and turns them into neighbors to be loved rather than objects of contempt to be destroyed. This is not just a story about loving your neighbor. This is a story about loving your enemy, who is also your neighbor. But thankfully, that's another sermon for another day. Because if we enter the parable itself and identify with the priest and the Levite, we have another set of questions to wrestle with. If we enter the story from the perspective of the priest and the Levite, then we have to ask ourselves, why don't we stop? Why do we pass him by? In the story itself, Jesus never shares the motivations of the priest and the Levite, which leaves us some room to fill in the blanks with our imagination. Why don't we stop? The most common reason scholars give for why the priest and Levite don't stop has something to do with maintaining ritual purity, which according to the law of Moses you would lose for a time if you touched a corpse. So the point then would be that these religious leaders are more concerned about maintaining their religious purity, their ritual purity, than they are actually helping someone in need. And this point preaches really well, especially to those of us who have a tendency to focus on the letter of the law over the spirit of the law. I love in this painting that 
presumably, this is the Levite. As he's passing the man by, he's reading his scroll. He's reading the law. He's so busy reading his Bible, he doesn't, doesn't stop to help the man. The problem with this explanation, maintaining ritual purity, though, is that the man wasn't dead. Jesus is very clear to say he was half dead, which is just this side of mostly dead, but a long way from completely dead, which would render him ritually unclean. Jesus also seems to indicate that the priest and the Levite were traveling down the same road, meaning they were coming from Jerusalem to Jericho, meaning their time of service in Jerusalem at the temple, which required ritual purity, was behind them, at least for a while. So if we read the story from this perspective, we have to consider the possibility that our reasons for not stopping are other than maintaining our ritual purity. So why don't we stop? Well, maybe we're afraid. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho is dangerous. And maybe the priest and the Levite don't stop because they're afraid they too will fall prey to bandits and robbers. This was Martin Luther King's reading of this parable. He said in one of his speeches, he says, I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me. It's possible these men were afraid. And so the first question the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to, the, stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the good Samaritan came by and he reversed the question, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? And King goes on to say, if I do not help the sanitation workers, what will happen to them? He said this in Memphis the day before he was assassinated. So why don't we stop? Maybe we're afraid. There is another possibility that's less dramatic but no less profound. And that's where this study conducted at the University of Princeton back in 1970 comes into play. Researchers sought to recreate the parable of the Good Samaritan among seminary students who were preparing to become ministers. And the setup for the study was they sent these students across campus on a route that would take them past someone collapsed in a doorway. And as they passed by this person, that person would let out a painful groan. And the question the researchers wanted to know, they wanted to ask and answer. The question was, how many of these future ministers would stop to help, and how many of them would just keep on walking? And then they threw a couple of twists into the study as well, complicated a bit. The students were sent across the campus to a specific location where they were told they were going to deliver a talk. They had a little sermon to preach. And half of the students were assigned the topic of, you guessed it, the Good Samaritan. 
and the other half were assigned some other topic. Now, some of the students were told that they were in no hurry, that they would arrive early and they would have to wait for others to arrive before they delivered their talk. But other students were told they were in a hurry, that they were going to be late if they didn't get a move on, and that there were already people there waiting for them to show up and deliver the talk. And the researchers were curious as to which of any of these factors would influence who stopped and who didn't. Would they all stop because they were all ministers in training? (laughs) Or would those who were going to preach a little sermon on the Good Samaritan, would they stop because they were already thinking about helping others in need? Or would those who have the most time be more likely to stop? Well, the results of the study were clear. There was only one factor that predicted who stopped and who didn't. And the ones who were most likely to stop were the ones who had the most time. When the parable, Jesus never tells us the priest and the Levite are pressed for time. There's no indication or evidence that they had someplace else to be. And yet it is interesting to note that the Samaritan spends the night with the man in the inn before going on his way. He invests not only his money, but also his time in the man's recovery. So again, why don't we stop? When we enter the story from the perspective of the priest and the Levite, we have to ask, what is it that keeps me, that keeps you, that keeps us from stopping and being neighbors to those around us who are in need? And not just our neighbors on the side of the road, but neighbors at home, in our neighborhood, or at work, or school, or our neighbors in this room. What keeps us from stopping and talking or listening or helping? What keeps us from demonstrating selflessness? Well, maybe, maybe we're so busy reading our Bibles and thinking deep theological thoughts, we don't see the need around us. I don't think that's it. Most of the time, I will confess on my behalf, there are some Sundays when I am so preoccupied with the sermon I'm about to preach, I am not fully aware of what's going on around me. That's a reality. But maybe we don't stop because we're afraid. I can think of some circumstances where that would be true for me. And perhaps you can think of a few for you as well. But my sense is, the Princeton study nails it for many of us. Why aren't we better neighbors? Why aren't we more helpful? Why is demonstrating selflessness a challenge for some of us? Simply because 
we are pressed for time. I'm horrible at this. I miss opportunities to stop and help and serve and engage my neighbors because I'm always telling myself I have someplace else to be or I have something more important to do. And so today, as as we begin to fill our schedules again, heading into a school year, begin to transition from perhaps a more relaxed summer schedule to a busier fall schedule. Come on, fall, please, please, please. My challenge for all of us is to leave some margin in our schedule. To intentionally leave some space on our calendars to not schedule our day in such a way that we're always moving from one meeting, one appointment, one practice to the next so that we do have some time. Time to stop. Time to demonstrate selflessness by being a good neighbor. Now, I don't know how many of us naturally identify with the Samaritan in this story. But what if in our culture where busyness is a status symbol? Where we brag about our busyness as a badge of pride? The key to being good Samaritans, the secret to being good Samaritans is being unhurried Samaritans less busy Samaritans who don't always have someplace else to be, who don't always have something else to do, but instead have the time to stop and love our neighbors well. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we ask that as we imagine ourselves as part of this parable and part of this exchange between Jesus and the expert in the law, that you would stir our hearts with compassion, but also at the same time calm our hearts so that we are less hurried, less busy, more present, more aware more ready to stop and be a neighbor to those around us. It's in the name of Jesus we ask you to work on our hearts. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Thank you so much for listening to the message from the Greenville Oaks message broadcast. We hope this message enriched your life and can help you inspire others to follow Jesus. Because we honestly believe following Him is the best way of life possible. Be sure to connect with us online on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube.